Hi, my name is Josh Kumar. My name is Asha Ramakumar, and I'm a student producer for We Need to Talk, Tough Conversations in Healthcare. As the title implies, this is a podcast devoted to tough conversations in health, how they impact those of us in the next generation, and how we can offer potential solutions. All of our conversations are based on public town halls and produced by our class at Arizona State University. Hi, my name is Swapna Reddy, and I'm an attorney, policy expert, and clinical assistant professor. And I'm Dr. Greg Meyer, surgeon and palliative care physician. Hi, and I'm Dr. Joe Servin, neurologist, and we're all faculty at ASU's College of Health Solutions. And this is We Need to Talk, Tough Conversations in Healthcare. Today we're talking about our recent live conversation regarding medical cannabis or medical marijuana and what's the truth about this drug. No substance in the United States has received as much media attention and is as polarizing as medical marijuana. The drug supporters see it as the aspirin of our time, able to cure most ills or at least make you feel better. Its detractors consider the drug a gateway to addiction. So it was exciting to discuss this with our ASU students. Our guests were ASU's Dr. Jason Robert, a bioethicist with expertise in the area of cannabis medical research, and Phoenix Children's Hospital pediatric neurologist and associate director of Barrow Neurologic Institute, Dr. Angus Wilfong, an expert in cannabidiol trials for epilepsy. Swapna, what did you think of uh, the evening uh, as you kind of heard our guests? Yeah, fascinating. You know, a piece that really stood out to me was when Dr. Wilfong was discussing the difference between anecdotes and clinical trials on this topic. Because when I think about it, I hear so much about the efficacy um, and sort of miracle drug concept of medical cannabis, but they all tend to be anecdotal stories, and I rarely hear about any actual clinical trials. So I thought this piece was incredibly interesting. Before we can widely embrace a particular therapy, no matter what it is, a new surgery, a new medical device, a plant that's been used for healthcare for 5,000 years, we need some science and not just anecdotes. So we're always prepared to use a new therapy when it gets discovered. And there's new drugs for epilepsy that come out once or twice a year. And uh, pharmaceutical cannabidiol is going to be available for me to prescribe in two weeks. So there's 5,000 years from the first recorded historical report of using a marijuana plant for healthcare. And in those 5,000 years, we have almost no clinical science. And science means not just getting some people in a room that have taken and asked how they feel and what happened to their symptoms. It's to do a scientifically valid, randomized, controlled clinical trial. And that's science, and that's what it takes to figure out whether something works. What do you think, Greg? Well, first of all, I thought it was interesting that our two guests are both Canadian, and our event was the day that in Canada, marijuana became legal. So it was kind of the right timing. Things fell into place. Perfect timing. Yes. And in fact, again, about Canada, Professor Robert mentioned the fact that a difference between Canada and the United States, and he used uh, an example involved uh, tobacco. And in Canada, just briefly, they have very uh, graphic warnings on cigarettes, et cetera. 
and it's an addictive substance, but in this country, it's uh, very, very different. There are plenty of things that are perfectly legal in this country that are fully addictive, and there's an interesting question about why we treat marijuana so significantly differently from how we treat, for instance, tobacco and alcohol. And, you know, though I can't buy tobacco at CVS, not that I do anymore, um, <laughs> when you consider, you know, cigarettes are available just about everywhere here and uh, have a little bit of a warning label on them, but as you may know, in Canada, cigarette packages have absolutely disgusting pictures of, of lungs and hearts and brains uh, of people who've uh, experienced pretty serious health complications that are directly attributable to tobacco use. And you can't even walk into a convenience store and take a look and see what kind of cigarettes are available because they all have to be under the counter. You have to know what you want to buy when you go in. And if you don't know and you ask, you know, what kind of menthol cigarettes do you have, they're supposed to turn you away. And there's policing of this in Canada. Yet in the US, alcohol and tobacco exceptionally widely available and regulated, sure, and taxed, sure, but it's not quite clear to me why marijuana falls into such a different mindset uh, amongst the American people and American politicians. Kind of uh, interesting, wasn't it, Joel? Yeah, you know, as, as someone who, who literally was at a convenience store right before we taped, uh, at looking to get a bag of chips, and the person behind me says, you're really going to have that? And I put it away. I, the power of stigma is very powerful, and, and clearly there's this huge difference in the stigma of cannabis versus alcohol and cigarettes uh, between our countries. And the power of guilt, too. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, you know, what I found most powerful and poignant were Dr. Wilfong's stories of him being on call and his experiences on uh, what he had to do in order to get help for his patients. Uh, he talks uh, in his story about having to get a Schedule One license, a special license that can only be obtained by certain physicians who want to use, prescribe an agent that's considered highly illegal in the United States for a medical purpose, and, and just what he had to do in order to do that. And I think his story was so fascinating. I was on call uh, the weekend and a child was transferred in who had been in another center for two weeks in uncontrolled status epileptics, continuous seizures in a coma in the ICU. She was going to die. And uh, I just happened to be on call that weekend. And it took me such a long time once I wanted to get the CBD uh, to actually getting it because I had to get a Schedule One license and it took me about a month to get that. Um, and in the meantime, the child's dying in the ICU. And getting it in a month was like unbelievably record setting. It usually takes six months to a year to get it. Unfortunately, one of my partners had a Schedule One license for a different product. And so we were able to get it. I called the company. We were able to get it within a few days. And uh, her seizures also stopped just within a couple of days. And she had failed every treatment. And her family sent me uh, a photo um, just uh, a month ago. And uh, this was about a year, just over a year and a half ago now that this happened. And she's seizure-free, not on any seizure medicines, back in school. And uh, the picture was her and her brother on the lake 
uh, being pulled behind a boat on, uh, on uh, wakeboards. So it saved her life. So, you know, there's no question that this product um, can work, and I, it works for childhood epilepsy. You know, I'm sure it's going to work for a lot of other things, but as a Schedule One drug, research is almost impossible. Swam, have you had and heard stories similar to what Dr. Wilfong described? Yeah, you know, this was a particularly powerful moment in the evening for me because it made me think about some close friends that I have with small children that have um, pretty rare forms of epilepsy. And, you know, as a mother of small children myself, I can certainly relate to how difficult that must be. Um, for my friends in particular, uh, as soon as the diagnosis came through, you know, they, they were in and out of the ED. They were trying treatments all over the country, really anything to help their children, and, and nothing was helping. And really all they saw was kind of a progressive decline. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the families in particular, they tried tried CBD and it was incredibly effective for their child. Uh, what was particularly tough though is that they lived and still do live in a state where it's not legal and so it remains a limited option for them. And I think that you know when you think about this in the perspective of, of real life families and children and the impact that it has on them, uh, really makes you kind of think about the laws and our, and our approach here. It's so sad uh, that it's, it's so difficult in order to help people, uh, all the hoops that you have to kind of jump through. And it's so frustrating as a surgeon and as a palliative care physician to not have the right instrument, not have the right type of graft for a vascular procedure, not have the right medication for a patient who's suffering in pain. And you're just, you get so frustrated and then you see the end result is, is on the individual, the patient that you're trying to help and your arms are tight. Well, that's all for now. Special thanks to our student producers at ASU, our podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, and our music is by Broke for Free. Please join us for our next We Need to Talk live event and podcast when we'll be addressing Alzheimer's and other dementias. Will we need to take care of our parents? I hope so. Yeah, looks like it. <laughs> and as someone who did take care of his parents with dementia, it is a lot of effort. On behalf of our co-moderators, Dr. Joseph Servan and Professor Swapna Reddy, as well as We Need to Talk class at ASU College of Health Solutions, this is Dr. Greg Meyer.